1: Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business.
2: Greetings of the day, my fellow listeners, and welcome to another edition of Building Better Businesses. I am your host, Steve Eschbach. I am the owner of Trans World Business Advisors of Naperville, Illinois, just about 40 miles outside of Chicago. I am one of about 7 Chicago Land Transworld owners and we are a mergers and acquisitions specialist firm. We uh, assist sellers confidentially sell their businesses and attract them with qualified buyers. We also do franchise sales and we also do franchise development. And I'm delighted to uh, have with me today a good friend, Amy Langer from Salo LLC. I'm going to give you a caveat here at the beginning. If there is any way, shape, or form, a sense of familiarity, it's because Salo and I, in some capacity, either with Amy or through her colleagues, have done some business together with the Financial Executive Networking Group, which is an executive uh, networking group for mostly senior-level financial executives in transition. And her firm has been very supportive for us. Believe it or not, she's based in Minneapolis but her support comes mostly through her office in Chicago. She'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. But Amy, it's a delight to have you here. Thanks so much for being a guest today.
0: Oh, and thank you for having me. It's fun.
2: Great to see you again. Uh, First question I have for you. I know you are the uh, founder of Salo LLC, and I don't know that our audience knows about this. By the way, you're one of the first HR business owners in this podcast series. So we're going to talk a little bit about why you need some better business practices for your hiring efforts. But anyway, tell me a little bit about Salo LLC.
0: Yes. Well, I'm one of two co-founders. John Folkstad is the other founder. And you know, we really started the business in 2002 with the idea of valuing the relationship over the transaction and thinking about our people, our employees, our clients. And we always think about it as... If I'm going to have this relationship for life, would I make what decisions would I make in terms of their employment or in terms of helping them solve their business problems? And that was really the foundation. Our specialties are in finance um, and then also in human resources. So really, when clients have an issue, they're trying to work through, we talk to them a lot about and ask a lot of questions, we get super curious about what's happening, what's the backdrop, what, what's going on around it, and then, you know, kind of pivot and say, how would we solve that with talent? And, you know, so then we have to get curious on the talent side. Where do you perform? What happens? And we start to really know and be able to curate these matches that, you know, work. And it's been really fun and really great to see it thrive.
2: Sounds good. We're going to get a little bit more into that, of the details on not only your client, which would be the company side, but the candidate side to fill those spots that are open. Because many people, uh, many business owners, I believe, don't realize how important the cultural fit is. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But as I do with most of my guests, we're going to kind of rewind the videotape, which means nothing to millennials, but for you and I, it does mean something. We're going to go back in time. So let's talk a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing. Where were you born? Where were you raised? What were your interests back then? And then after you give me that, we're going to talk a little bit about your formative years, high school through college. So let's start back with Amy as a child.
0: Well, I grew up in Quincy, Michigan, which is a town of about 1,200 people. There's one stoplight, and um, I'm a farm kid. My grandparents both had farms when I was growing up, and we grew up on, or I grew up on one of them where my parents took over. So that was early, Um, a lot of value of hard work. Um, For sure, I got from those formative years, and really, I've thought about this in retrospect, sort of the value of entrepreneurship. You know, my family didn't work for other people. We worked for ourselves and everything that we ate and had, you know, was really curated from ourselves. So um, that was the, you know, really a great foundation. In the mid 80s, it was really rough for us. Actually, the farms had trouble in the 80s. Our did as well. My dad had a little farming business, and um, both of all of that went under, and my dad moved on. And so my mom was left with three children, no formal education outside of high school, and really kind of pivoted. So that was a pretty pivotal moment for me where I was like, "Ooh, what am I going to do next? And really started to think about education and what that might mean and what I needed to do to have sort of a different outcome than that.
2: So when you were a young child, let's say around three years old, and you jumped on the tractor and you were racing up and down the cornfields. What was going through your mind in terms of what you thought you wanted to be when you grow up? Was it being a farmer? Was it being an entrepreneur? We're going to find out how you got into human executive resources, executive recruiting. But what was going through your mind back then? And how did that pave the way through high school and into college?
0: Well, I'm not sure I really thought about it at that age. I just had this really lovely upbringing with lots of family, surrounded by family and my two brothers. Um, I wouldn't think that... I've always wanted to be in business. I was always interested on the the business side or how things work in that capacity. For a while, I thought I wanted to be an orthodontist. Um, But then, you know, I would go to Chicago very rarely, but on occasion, because most of the time we didn't travel a ton. It's hard to find, you know, when you're on the farm, you don't travel a ton outside, but I had been to Chicago and there was like this big, tall building. I'm like, I want to work there. I didn't know what it meant to work there. I didn't know, but I always, it was alluring and always interesting for me to pursue.
2: Sounds good. Now, when you were going through uh, grammar school, high school, what were your subject matter interests back then? Was it math? Was it reading? Was it history? What was it?
0: Yeah, I was. I mean I'm pretty decent academically and I didn't everything just sort of flowed it was pretty easy for me and so I was attracted to a lot I've always had this like I get excited about a lot of things so um you know math was good I did take an initial accounting class in high school and that spurred something for me and my high school teacher said well it's the language of business and so That is what I pursued in high school. Yeah. So I have a twin brother. And, you know, I think having somebody with me on those early years, like, gave a bit of confidence of going into new places and having that. Um, So I think that was part of my original formation that's made a difference too. just kind of having a little bit more confidence.
2: Well, that's what you need confidence. That's great. And you show it very well, by the way. So when you were in college, what were your uh, academic concentrations through your college years?
0: I wanted to be in business. So I got I went to Michigan State University. I put myself entirely through uh, Michigan State on my own. I had some grants, some scholarships, and the rest I just worked. I mean, worked 30 to 40 hours a week. um, All summers, I would double down um, to have enough money To get through, and I knew I wanted to be in business. And somebody said to me, you know, kind of really the hardest business degree is accounting. So I thought, and because, but once you understand it, you could do lots of things with it. So I'm like, okay, accounting degree sounds great. And then someone's like, oh, if you have an accounting degree and you do well in school, you should go work for one of these big firms. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. And I was hired by KPMG and just an amazing experience. The first office building I was ever in was my office interview with KPMG. And it was like drinking from a fire hose, um, starting there and learning and being surrounded by all these amazingly smart people. So I'm so fortunate.
2: Was that interview in Chicago or what major city was that in?
0: So they originally came to our campus And then I happened to interview with the Minneapolis office. They were looking at getting some people outside of Minnesota. So my joke is always that their diversity was getting the farm kid out of Michigan instead of the farm kid out of Minnesota. And I was also looking a little bit in Detroit and I had an option of Chicago. And quite frankly, at the time, Chicago seemed too big. I didn't know a lot of people. It seemed quite large. Detroit was kind of foreign, even from a farm kid perspective. And I thought, Minnesota seems like a good spot. So I, I was here yeah. once before I moved.
2: <laughs> I'll share with you a little secret. The Transworld owner who uh, runs the entire Minnesota office, his other job is a farmer. So oh, there you go. So farmers do get into business, just like you demonstrated with there where you, you, you. Yeah. So you were in a corporate environment. You were working at KPMG. Back in the day when I got my accounting degree, there were eight accounting firms. Were there four or were there six back then? I forget.
0: There were six when I started, but within the first few years, they combined into four. So there was four when I was there during that time period.
2: So hint to our audience: consolidation is pretty, pretty paramount in a lot of industries. So you worked at KPMG for how many years? And that's in a corporate environment. And that was accounting, right?
0: Yeah. That was a full was- on. A full on, yeah, assistant accountant in auditing. I loved that work. I really love here's what I loved. I loved being able to understand new businesses, get in, try to understand it. You got put with new teams all the time, being able to figure out who the teams were, what they were, what the hierarchy is, who the clients are. Like that was my love. My not so much love was the actual accounting work quite frankly, like that required work for me. The other side was really natural. And to the point of, I did flunk the CPA exam twice in a row. And the third time I finally passed it. But during that flunking (laughs) twice, being surrounded by people who were passing with flying colors, talking about sort of the problems and how to solve it, It became really clear. I call this a pivot moment where it became really clear, like that was not my forte. My forte was around teams, building people. And that kind of gave me an illusion of like, okay, I should go look where I can see they're going to outpace me at a certain point because I'm going to have to work harder at that. So I better go to like follow these strengths instead.
2: Oh, it's good. You know, there's hope in your story because uh, you only failed the CPA exam twice, right? And then you're now a business owner. Thomas Edison failed almost a thousand times before we have light bulbs in our house. So perseverance is key. We're going to talk some, about some ours too, because there's resilience, there's rebound, there's recharge. We'll get into that in a moment. But so I can see where Amy has an accounting and auditing background, but not really what she really wants to do. You want something broader. That's kind of where you got into the executive recruiting, I think, It also got into where you're not just an accounting recruiting firm, you do multiple things. So how did the transition from KPMG to you founding Salo come about? And you said you had a founding partner, so you didn't do it alone, which goes also to show you that you can't conquer the world all by yourself. You do need subject matter experts to your left and right. In your case, it was either or. I'm not sure which one, but tell me a little bit about KPMG and how Salo came about.
0: Well, after KPMG, I went to a staffing firm to be in sales. And really, that's where I met my now current business partner. And we worked together. I worked for him for a while. We worked as peers for a while. And then I took a, another role. And through that, I actually was pretty good at that work. You know, I was a national award winner for sales. And then I ended up really at a still a very young age I was still 27 28 um, as a director going around nationally trying to help different offices on sort of setting their vision doing the work kind of excelling and so through that you know it was through both right that I feel like Salo came about because my initial experience was I really appreciated the culture, how relationships were made, what, how people thought about long term um, with the clients and employees. And then the second place I was at, I loved the work. Like I really truly loved making the connections and the pace and putting things together and solving these problems on this quick twitch sort of way. But the environment wasn't something that I saw myself in long-term. And so when John and I got together to think about Salo, this relationship over the transaction, and really thinking about how do we think about things long-term, but also have a place where people can do the work they love. Because I think when people, individuals can understand where they excel and what they love to do they're just better at it, it just feels much better. And so that's always been a premise of kind of where we started and that was really the idea. How do we have people who want to do project related work, at senior levels, that's very complex, not dumbed down, like, hey, you could go fill this slot. But how do you help somebody get to an achievement of the work that they want to do, but also feel like they have a home to be able to do it. And that was really sort of the vision at the beginning that's then continued to play out.
2: So it was a recruiting firm from the get go wasn't any type of other firm you saw the need to kind of bring those people in on uh, special assignments over a short period of time. That was your vision from the get-go, you and John, right?
0: Yes. So very much a contingent placement firm, meaning when companies need project-related help, they turn to us. So our employees are not short-term to us, but they are project-related to the companies that they serve.
2: Sounds good. So now we're going to get into a little bit of the building better businesses, because now I got to believe that you would be the resource for those businesses that need short term assignments to get special projects done and to go forward, which is a niche, I'm sure that not very many recruiting firms, you know, I I, I run the financial executive network group in downtown Chicago. Many of our recruiting partners are permanent placement partners. Robert Half would be one of them, and they're a little bit bigger, but your specialty, your niche. And you come right out and say, it's primarily contract work. Don't come to us if you want a permanent placement. We can help you get there, but that's not what we do. Is that correct?
0: We do some permanent placement, but we definitely lead with project-related work. It's anything from an interim where your CFO left and you needed someone to step in, or many times with growing companies, how do we help them? They commonly get to a point where they need a different level of CFO or controller or someone coming in to be able to help to analytics work. And on the HR side, very, very similar. Sometimes we're the fractional HR leader in an organization, or we help them with their organizational design, or we help with compensation related projects or recruiting. But I always think about it as you know, you want to get from A to B, and maybe the staff that you have isn't doesn't have everything that you need. How can we pop somebody in, look at what that looks like, get somebody in who has the expertise you need to get you to that outcome that you want.
2: Sounds good. So you went from Minnesota, Minneapolis, Chicago. How did that Chicago uh, office opening come about?
0: You know, we had uh, one of our employees who was interested in doing something more with us. And so that person also had some ties to Chicago. And that's how we originally got there. And it was kind of a slog. <laughs> you know, it took a lot longer than we thought. It was definitely, if you think about persistence and patience, those aren't the R words, but they they count too. And you know, that's how we got there. We thought, well, gosh, we're doing this here. It's it's close. There's a lot of connections between businesses, between the markets. But quite frankly, it was a different market, and I'm not sure we put enough in it at the beginning to quite get what we needed. And so it took us a little longer than we thought to make it really, really hum.
1: Absolutely.
2: So you also demonstrate another, I guess, mantra, if you will. You just got to go do it and then kind of adjust as you go by rather than waiting for the perfect environment to hit the button go, right? So you just started and things kind of formulated over time. That's correct? Yes. Uh, That sounds good. Um, so we talked a little bit about the alliteration. So my first book was Link, Learn, Leverage. The second book is going to be Building Better Businesses. We had a conversation before we began this about ours. And you were on vacation recently to, was it to recharge? But we also talked about resilience What else did we talk about that began with the letter R? They're all very, very good, and I think it kind of relates to the building better business principle. So I want to talk a little bit about those R's that are your favorite, and I'm sure some of our audience members will find it uh, key to listen in on this.
0: Well, I definitely think resiliency is something that I've continued to realize important to know and do and understand in yourself and so resiliency for sure and part of being resilient is being able to recharge and kind of bring that uh, kind of back together but as you said even with Thomas Edison or even you know flunking the CPA exam twice like there are a lot of things that don't go as planned and in a business, you can have a vision, you can have plans, you can have people to help execute and things happen. And what I have found is as I've gotten older, wiser, have had more experiences, I start to understand there are learnings in those things that don't quite go as planned. And that's helped me be more resilient, if that makes sense.
2: And, uh, By the way, as an effort and further disclosure, so you failed the CPA exam twice, I failed my CFA level three once, so I was not a perfect three-for-three three to get my CFA designation. And I don't want to highlight on that, but it just does demonstrate that, and it goes to re- resiliency. This is not an R word but persistence. You're going to run into these roadblocks from time to time, but if you can overcome them and succeed going forward, that demonstrates... Character, not an R word. What, what R word would relate to that? I can't imagine.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Ridiculousness, maybe. <laughs> um, don't advertise you know,
2: your business as ridiculous staff members, I'm sure of that. <laughs> but I get what you're saying.
0: The You know, I was talking to a woman who I've sort of mentored over these years, and she had a really disheartening week last week and she basically has to shut down her business and repurpose the technology to something else. And it was really a difficult, you could tell it was really difficult. And she sort of started off with, well, you've never really failed. Like, I don't know how you're going to mentor me. You've never really failed. And I was drinking a little bit of water and did a spit take. I like spit it out. I'm like, I've failed more than I've succeeded. I just had one big good success that kind of helps hide those others. But, you know, we've tried other things from time to time. We've had multiple different businesses and sort of different iterations and ways that we were trying to expand that didn't make it. And I think sometimes when we look at people in their success, we see them as today, not what it took to get them there. And all of those failures or learning opportunities kind of helps sort of, if we can learn from them and see them and recognize them for what they are, then we can make different choices going forward. And that's where I really... I'm more cognizant and intentional about that work now. And I think, you know, I was 29 years old when I started the company, Um, we'll just turn 30. And I didn't really realize that then. It just felt like it would just hit me in the face, hit me in the face, like, ah, this is too much, you know, like these. And now I sort of lean into them a little bit more.
2: So some of my networking colleagues kind of laugh when I tell them this that I no longer make mistakes. Okay. So I've had 40 years of experience and, this sounds amazing, but I never make another mistake again in my career. But I can tell you, I have a ton of learning experiences. So long story short, I don't define mistakes as mistakes. They are actually learning experience because if you can't learn from some miscues, then you're not doing yourself uh, any justice at all. I have one question to ask you. And for my audience here, I don't think I've introduced this concept, but what is the definition of a winner in your mind? And I don't know if you're ready to answer that, Amy, because I have my own definition.
0: Well, I'd definitely be interested in hearing about your definition. Off the cuff, I would say, if you're pursuing what you want to pursue, if you're doing the things that you want to do, if you're able to think of something and be able to fulfill it um, with your own efforts, whatever that looks like, to me, that's winning.
2: And I like your definition, but mine is a little different. I define a winner as a loser who tried one more time.
0: (laughs) No, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Yours when is my, more
2: fun. <laughs> when I do my public speaking, uh, the last slide that is always in my slide deck is Michael Jordan, and he talks about how many times he missed a shot and how many times he was asked to have the winning basket. And he concentrates on the times he misses and the times he lost, but he says, "I'm a I'm a success because I fail." And his last comment that I always close my public speaking uh, engagements with is. I can accept failure. I cannot accept not trying, which clearly that's uh, demonstrated by uh, who you are and how you've gotten to be where you are. So we're at the end of our uh, 20 or so minutes of our podcast. Amy, is there anything we haven't talked about that you want our audience to know about?
0: You know, I think on your theme of building better businesses, when I think about truly one thing that I've done throughout the years that has made a huge difference, I always think about my support system. And truly having uh, people around me, not just my parents and my brothers and my friends and things like that, but really a cohort of people who are in similar circumstances that you can really talk about, whether it's an advisory board or I'm very involved with women's presidents organization and lives are complex. And if you're building a business and have a family and do things in the community It's not very simple. It's not just having a job (laughs) or even having a big job. It's very complex when you employ lots of people. And so I just think, make sure you have a really, really, really good support system.
2: Absolutely. Surround yourself with successful people and you'll become an Amy Langer out there in the world. So So Amy, um, last question. Where can we find out more about your company? You're yourself. Anything related to Salo, tell us where we can go to get that.
0: Well, Salo LLC.com. Um, you can definitely go there. And we're on LinkedIn, we do stuff on Twitter. We are, here's a little preview. Um, we are doing a national brand expansion. We're going to have a brand launch, a new exciting, fun brand launch coming in May. So hopefully you'll be seeing more of us in a lot of places. As, you know, COVID hit and we are re-looking at how we do, we're kind of taking our base in the Midwest and taking that national. So a lot of exciting things to come.
2: Absolutely. And I think, Amy, uh, you nailed it. Um, we are dealing now, hopefully, in what is soon to become a post-COVID-19 environment. And things are going to change, I think, in many aspects. So you just need to be informed and uh, respond accordingly. Well, listeners, that was another edition of Building Better Businesses. I thank you so much for joining us. Amy, thanks again for your insights and uh, I appreciate you sharing your uh, words of wisdom, another alliteration there, if you will. And
1: uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits, You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business.